Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week on the podcast, we're talking to one of our favorite directors, Steven Soderbergh, whose latest film, Kimi, premiered on HBO Max last week. Kimi follows an agoraphobic tech worker, played by Zoe Kravitz, as she uncovers evidence of a crime and becomes ensnared in an increasingly deadly corporate conspiracy. Kimmy takes narrative and aesthetic cues from paranoid classics like Rear Window, The Conversation, and Blow Up. But Soderbergh's typically sleek, imaginative thriller is also utterly contemporary, capturing a world where the twin threats of COVID and surveillance have become part of the fabric of our everyday lives. We chatted with Soderbergh at length about his very productive pandemic, his collaboration with screenwriter David Kep, how big tech can make bad ideas even worse, and a lot more. We also got a little insight into Stephen's much-awaited next project, Magic Mike's Last Dance. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us, Stephen. We're big fans of your work, and we really enjoyed Kimi. You know, you made the classic pandemic film back in 2011, and now I feel like you've made uh, a new classic post. I'm scared of saying post-pandemic, but... Uh, Not yet, not yet. (laughs) Okay, latter pandemic film. I would say Candajan was the pre-pandemic, the precursor, right? But yeah, just really thrilled to be chatting with you today. Thanks. Well, what ended up being tricky about Kimmy was the idea occurred to David Kep before COVID. So we had to make some decisions how to integrate it. We knew we had to integrate it. We wanted it to be a contemporary story, but there was a lot of discussion about, well, what level is COVID at, you know, 10 months from now? We were shooting in March and April of last year before Delta even. And so we kind of just went on speculation. And I think we found some sort of balance. It was it was certainly my belief that we'd still be in it in some fashion. So uh, yeah, we, we kind of, we, we let it sort of bubble under the surface more than, than speak about it openly, which is I think what happens as you get further in, you stop talking about it, but you're still living with it. It's just part of the ambient world, day-to-day life. Exactly, exactly. So that's, uh, that's how we win. That's David Kep, the screenwriter of Kimi, who also wrote The Panic Room, which is, you know, feels like a bit of an influence. Maybe you could tell us a little about uh, when you both started talking about this movie and how it came about. This was an idea that David brought up to me four years ago. I think we were both in London. He was living there at the time and I was visiting and we went and had a drink. And he said, I saw this story that I thought was interesting about a murder case that was recorded by a listening device. But there's been a little, if I remember it properly, at least in the early stages, Amazon didn't seem very interested in in helping. (laughs) And David said, while he was reading about this story that he discovered, there were real people that listened to streams. And 
attempted to update the software to, to make it more responsive uh, to your needs and more specific to your needs. And he just thought this was a really odd job to have, to be listening to, be listening to anonymized discussions uh, and requests from these devices all over the country. And that's, he started to bring in thriller aspects being, what if you heard something that you really had a question about? And so I immediately encouraged him to, to pursue this. This sounded really fun to me. And um, we didn't talk for a bit. And then the last dinner that my wife and I had out before the shutdown, the first shutdown, was with David and his wife, Melissa, and he, he wanted a reconfirmation of my enthusiasm for this idea. And I said, yes, I, I still think this is great. The first dinner that we had out after the first lockdown, you know, gave you the opportunity to go out was with David and Melissa, and he gave me the first draft. So that turned out to be a very fertile period for David. So he so after the first lockdown, he he was able to get down to work with this new reality, though, and yeah, and kind of informing that, I imagine, too, right? Yes. Yeah. We wanted to ask actually a little bit about the thriller aspect. It seems very much rooted in kind of Hitchcock and Rear Window, especially, and the conversation. Yep. Coppola film. How did you update those kind of classic themes to this tech, this like very now tech world that the, in which the movie takes place? Well, I think David and I share an impulse to avoid overscaling things. And David, David describes a, a movie like Kimmy as a bottle movie where there's, a, there's just a very, very small, well-defined uh, perimeter that the story exists within. And he, he likes to take that restriction and just go as deep into it and explore as many possibilities that are allowed as, as he can come up with. And I like those too. So as much as we were silently referencing Rear Window and the conversation and Panic Room, we were also thinking about films like Repulsion that, that, that again is incredibly restricted in terms of its physical footprint. She's either in her apartment, she's in her apartment most of the movie, walks to work, then she's at work, that's it. And so, you know, that's, that's a challenge, but I think when you're forced to think laterally instead of vertically, so that whenever you're trying to ad address a problem, you're not, you're not going to that place of, well, we just need more money, it just needs to be bigger. David and I, I think, don't necessarily think that way. And so it seemed like we were aligned. We've been wanting to work together for a long time. We've known each other over 30 years. My biggest fear, apart from just the directorial aspects of the movie, were that our friendship would survive this process. You just, you really don't know somebody until 
you know, they've directed a movie for you. So fortunately, uh, we're still talking and and we got out the other end. Well, Debbie and I will have to, uh, to write some movies for each other and then direct them and then we'll, we'll truly. It's, <laughs> it's a test. There's no hiding. You cannot hide. You cannot hide who you are when you're under that kind of sort of work pressure over a long period of time. Like it's just, it's very, it's very intimate. It's a lot like the film. There's this compressed space, I imagine. Yeah. I was going to say the circus, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating in that way because the, the relationships are very intense, but for a prescribed period of time, like, you know, here's when we start and here's when we finish. And then, you know, inevitably you, you, there's, there are people that you attach to that, you know, oh, this is someone I'm going to be in regular contact with for the rest of my life. And you care a lot about it. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But I mean, people who have more traditional jobs don't meet this many new people in their lives. You know, it's uh, so it's fascinating. Well, I had a, a question kind of digging into the rear window influence a little bit. Were there any musical cues that you were borrowing from Hitchcock movies? There were points where I thought I heard a theme that felt really retro and that seemed to really harken back to Vertigo or Rear Window. And I I was wondering if that was part of the design. Oh, absolutely. Cliff and I, uh, Cliff Martinez, the composer, and I talked briefly before we started shooting. And I said, look, we've got to, I I really want to be in that, Bernard Herrmann space, but there has to be some aspect to it that doesn't f- make it just feel like a, a copy. And and I think Cliff found a way to arrange the sort of sonic menu of his score in such a way that it feels connected to that while having its own sauce uh, that's specific to this film. These kinds of films are very score dependent. So it's kind of, it's, it's yours to lose in the sense that if you don't have a great score, you've, that's an unforced error that's, that's going to hurt the film. Talking a little more about Rear Window, you know, obviously the first maybe third of the film is such a direct but subversive homage uh, to Rear Window in terms of the characters looking at each other through their windows. But what is interesting is that the voyeur at the center of this film is a woman. And, you know, her control fixation is, is sort of different than, than in those movies where there's this man who, you know, he was like a sexual or other kind of, you know, I wouldn't say predator, but someone who has this like desire for omniscience, perhaps. At the same time, Angela is also the woman in peril of those movies. You know, she's like both of those characters. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little about, you know, designing this kind of movie around a woman, which you've done like with Unsane, for example. But, you know, what are the particularities of that? Well, you're right in that we were we were trying to to have it both ways, where she a really active watcher of other people, but is also also ends up being the subject of surveillance and attack. And 
I think in this instance, the, the key was to make sure she was really three-dimensional in, in, her, in her personality and the way she behaved. She's not always nice and she, she can be very selfish and self-serving. Um, she's willing to use any aspect of her situation to, to get what she wants or to win an argument. Like she's, she's kind of prickly. And, and I, I, I like that about her because it, it increases the sense of you being around somebody who's not performing, you know, who is, who is, who is because of the cocoon that she's created for herself and the fact that she knows she can control any confrontations that she has with people by just hitting, you know, leave meeting or hanging up. Or calling back over and over and over again, right? Yeah. Exactly. So there's, you know, David sort of arranging this set of circumstances in which, you know, a thing that's happening to the character, maybe something that's happening to a lot of people, but in this case, it's happening to the worst possible person, you know, who, who would be, would have his situation sort of dumped in their lap. Um, so if you can, if you can do that in a way that's entertaining, um, and come up with a lead character who keeps you guessing, um, then, then you're, you've got a good foundation. And yet she's also kind of the perfect character because she's so persistent. There's these contradictory elements to this character that, uh, really kind of make her very rich and nuanced. Just wanted to ask about how you kind of worked with Zoe Kravitz to build this character. She's really good at portraying this kind of neuroses while also having these moments of self-confidence. Well, you know, it began with her reading the script, which I think she locked into immediately. And then the conversations become about physicalizing Angela. Was she your all, always in mind for this script or what made you actually approach her in the first place? I'm curious. Well, she's been on my list of people that, that I thought were doing really great work. And so I have, I have two lists, people that I've worked with before that I keep uh, cycling through as kind of an informal repertory company. And then new people, uh, that have caught my interest and and that I keep in mind as as projects emerge. So she was one of those people. This seemed like a fairly, uh, if not an obvious, uh, a smart alignment of her abilities and the requirements of this script. Immediately, we started talking about, well, what is the physical aspect? And first thing she said was what I've noticed during lockdown is people doing weird shit with their hair because they can't go to the salon and they're just trying to figure out they want to do something. They want to feel like change is still possible in, in a lockdown situation. And she feels like she said, I, I have an idea of how I want her self dyed self styled hair to work. This turns out to me to be 
a, an incredibly crucial choice in presenting her character. It's just a really striking thing that she's done to herself, but it totally fits her. And a shot of color in the film, too. It almost, it's like all the other colors seem to then fit around that electric blue. Exactly. And there's all this this theme of tracking, too. You can always kind of pick her out at the crowd physically in the physical world, not just in this digital world. Yeah. How do I put a price on her having that idea? That's the, You can look at me and tell you, and you know I'm not probably well-versed to tell people what to do with their hair. So... You know, that's that's a gigantic idea. And that's that just confirms what I felt watching her on screen. She just radiated intelligence. And there is a reason for that. She's just really smart. And her physicality is the way she kind of slinks around in the hallways. And is I remember that there's that scene where she's hiding beneath a a berm of some kind and like scuttling along yeah. trying to escape some some villains and she just is really kind of uh, brings a, a very unique physical presence to the screen proto catwoman well yeah uh, no she just has she just has microscopic control and the access to all of it like she's she's got all the tools so I was listening to an interview that you did on a podcast and you said that the two most important people on a uh, film shoot for you are the location scout and the dolly grip. And I imagine both were probably central to the outdoor uh, half of this film where you're really navigating through Seattle, did, which, by the way, did you shoot on site? In, yeah. OK, yeah. yeah. And, you know, really making use of the city and just a very kinetic uh, camera, you know, tracking along and these, you know, spectacular zoom ins and zoom outs, which have this kind of B movie vibe, but also feel very sleek and, you know, kind of fit the this like tech city vibe that uh, that we get as she is making her way through Seattle. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about conceptualizing and shooting those city scenes. Well, there was a very clear opportunity to radically alter the the style and the aesthetic of the movie when she leaves the apartment. And I decided not to be subtle about that at all. Um, in fact, to, to absolutely run toward the most assaultive visual and sonic landscape that, that I could muster and still sleep at night. So, you know, yeah, we sort of put the top down, opened the, you know, rolled the windows down and went really fast as we chase her through Seattle. Inside her apartment, we are always on, uh, the camera is always stable. It's always on a, a fluid head or a dolly. And the, the movement is much more sinuous and, and justified, hopefully. Um, but that's, you know, those are the fun parts is thinking about how to, how to use uh, the various effects that you have at your disposal to, to immerse you into the character's experience. And I could justify a lot of it because it, the whole movie is so clearly subjective in the sense that it's trying to recreate 
her emotional life. It's not trying to be objective at all. It's her, it's her experience. So that gives me a little bit of room to play. So I play. Do you do you shoot differently when you know that the movie is, for instance, for a streaming service like HBO Max versus a theatrical release? No, no. I think um, it's really it's less about the the size of the frame. Uh, to me, if you were going to consider how big something is going to be when somebody watches it, it's actually more about resolution. And so that so that when you're shooting a wide shot, no matter how small the device, there's still enough detail to read or recognize the what you want people to see within the frame. So cinema, I've always said cinema to me is a is a language uh, that the director is is speaking. It's not has nothing to do with where you see it. It's it has everything to do with what they made. I wanted to ask a little bit of the humor in the movie, especially in the second half. Once the kind of chase gets going, there's a little bit more of a cartoonish aspect. Even or it kind of reminded me of late Hitchcock too, like the family plot kind of this combination of fear, chills, and also kind of humor i get you know this these funny characters i mean the villains are so wonderfully goofy while also being sinister (laughs) that emerged during the shoot or like was that part of the original idea for the original vision for the how this film would play out yeah i mean i guess in my mind i read it or was playing it as as a pure nightmare and 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 nightmares tend to have archetypes you know what i mean and so i i was i was going i was going into what i thought was the nightmare space uh both visually and musically like there's a music cue at a key point when she realizes that something terrible really is happened is happening to her the music there is more of a nightmare that's gone wrong than a pure action cue. You know what I mean? It's much more lyrical and, and fable-like. And so I really wanted to push this idea of her in her mind just going like, this is a nightmare. I'm in a, I'm in a nightmare. Like it's, it, it's, there's the, like I said, the characters that she's encountering and the situations feel like the ones in a nightmare where things change right in front of you. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. The ending sequence of the film when the villains, uh, the goons, are in Angela's apartment. Uh, I saw someone online say that it reminded them of Home Alone, which is, you know, a great comparison because of Devin Rattray's presence in that scene. And, you know, I think that's a good reference, too. And that's where the kind of humor part also comes in because of the performances and, you know, Angela improvising ways to, you know, use 
the elements of her home and her smart home uh, in many ways yeah. to to foil these villains. Um, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, and Devin Dratry's character, uh, I mean, I don't want to spoil this for listeners, but that was such a wonderful surprise, you know, how he becomes important in the film. And it's something that I thought, you know, this very sinister kind of theme of voyeurance and surveillance in the film, but it also ends on a note of community and um, almost this idea of how living in a very isolated way where we don't know what's going on in our neighbors' lives is actually, you know, not what we want either. There's actually something very beautiful about the fact that these people have this. Well, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? right? I mean, like, like he's... he's Creep, yeah. I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> but I think that that agnostic view of technology, as I think it's really interesting in this film. Like it's it's easy to fall into the idea that it's a it's a world dominating evil. But I think here it's used as a tool. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on technology as something that can be both dangerous, but also. I mean, I think you know. Your interest in technology is well-known, well-documented. Well, you know, history shows us that we're really good at inventing things and then figuring out the worst possible use of that thing. This is, we're good at both of those. Technology isn't alive in the sense that it cares. So it's about how we employ it and... The, the, I think what we've witnessed, you know, in, during the last 15 years is that technology allows bad ideas to scale even faster than they do normally. Bad ideas, bad ideas do scale faster than good ideas. Um, technology has really added rocket fuel to that reality. In this case, however, you can make an argument that technology ended up being a reason that she survives what's happening to her. So what's great about Angela is that she doesn't panic. Panic is when you forget everything that you know, like all the knowledge that you have that would help you in this moment is just gone. And you're, that's panic. She doesn't do that. She, no matter how much pressure she's under, she manages to remember everything that she knows and she uses it to solve her problem. So I just think that watching characters who are good at things is really compelling. You know, there's a, a moment in the film that really stuck out to me when Angela is listening back to some of these streams and trying to manipulate the sound so that she can hear what seems like a crime, you know, more clearly. And it doesn't really work. Yeah. So she brings down this sort of analog contraption and uses <laughs> that. And that seems to work, you know, much better. Um, I know we know that you're not particularly like precious about, uh, you know, analog and you've shot some wonderful movies on iPhones. I But I wondered if there's some larger, there was some larger message about technology in that scene. No, not really. And I, I that one just an example of me absolutely going big. That piece of equipment, which sound mixers and re-recording mixers are very familiar with, it's an old piece of technology that turned out to be a very good piece of 
old technology. It's fairly preposterous she would have that, um, but but I didn't care because because the payoff was so much fun in just pure movie terms. To me, that's one of the strongest pure visual sequences in the film, despite it being about an audio track. It's what movies do well for seven or eight minutes. There's no dialogue except for this file she keeps hearing over and over again. You're just building it image by image. That's fun. Yeah, and it also, it it is even more fun because there is a limit to how much I feel like visual uh, dynamism you can extract from like a computer screen where she's like pressing one button. And then when you have this object, you know, it shifts registers and then it feels you can play with it a little more visually speaking. Well, one of the reasons I enjoyed making the Nick so much was there was none of that. (laughs) There were no screens. Like it was Mm -hmm. so it was so nice. To not have to shoot that stuff, but shooting it is such a is so necessary now, such a challenge. And this movie seems like very, 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 you know, just reading the synopsis, it's so integrated into contemporary reality, from the pandemic down to the screens. You ask any filmmakers making a movie set today, and how to handle emails, voice voicemails, and texts is huge. Like because it's so, it's so clunky in just movie terms. Yeah, you often see this kind of the text appears on the screen, like in this film, and it pops up, and it's you know it's an effective way of doing it. And I've seen other, you know, you hear people's voices, you have voiceover reading the text, and sort of a yeah, I've done that. Um, it's it's you've got to find a balance. I think in this case, I had so many screens to shoot that I felt seeing the text bubbles was a way of just relieving myself and the audience of these endless inserts of texts and emails and stuff. So I I think everybody, every filmmaker has to make this decision, you know, and it's weird. It's weird that that's a thing. I imagine, I'm imagining like, you know, people saying this about just analog telephone conversations, like, how are we going to shoot this? How are we going to make this visually interesting? Like somebody just talking into an object. Yeah. There was shorthand for that as well. I mean, you know, split screens and all that. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty cool. It was a better prop when the thing you spoke into uh, was separate from the thing that you listened to. So you've, you've got, because you could use, you could like wave it around. You could, you know what I mean? Like it gave you more stuff to do but now people don't even talk on their phones there i don't even no. yeah, i don't think you have many shots of like anybody holding this the iphone well no she's she's on the phone but she's talking to like with her earbuds yeah and it's still i don't know about you it's still disconcerting to to be out walking in public and somebody's got like earbuds in and they're talking they're walking towards you and they're like talking but they're looking at you <laughs> right. as they're talking. It's very, it's, it's disconcerting. Right. And that is the default now in, in cities. So. Yeah, it's like they're talking. There's like this three-way going on that I did not want to participate <laughs> in. 
where you're like talking to somebody and looking at me. I've responded, <laughs> I think, and I've just been ignored. And then I was like, wait, they're not talking to me. Like, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Um, another aspect of, you know, how the film feels very contemporary is how it pretty effortlessly, I think, weaves in this background of the anti-homeless protests and counter-protests in Seattle. And also, you know, uh, uh, sort of this this theme about police and poli- and the failures of policing, especially with reference to, you know, sexual assault. It's, it's not like very prominent, but you use those elements really cleverly, especially when uh, Angela goes into the crowd of protesters. I was wondering um, when or where did those elements come from? Were they, were they maybe just uh, permeating into the film, you know, during 2020 when all this was really in the news? That's David's, you know, innate sense of of movie arithmetic at play. And and so I think David would have been looking for another, you know, narrative thread that's braided into the story. Maybe, as you say, maybe not as thick a thread as some other elements, but it's there. And in following what was just happening in the world, it turns out that people are in the streets a lot and people in Seattle aren't shy about going out into the street. So it's, it's, that's David, I think, you know, familiarizing himself enough with a location to, to say, okay, this is something that happens there. How do we use that? And so that, again, yeah, places it in the world as uh, we're experiencing it. Are you uh, Seattle? What's your relationship with that city? Um, my daughter lives there. Ah, oh. that's a pretty intense relationship. Or, you know. Yeah, so um, I spend some time there. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a for a filmmaker... Um, a really fun, vibrant place to shoot. And initially, the the assumption was we would get Seattle weather while we were in Seattle, or what is typically referred to as Seattle weather. We had a, a week plus of blazing sunshine. And there was some frustration with that at first, but now I, I, I feel so lucky that that happened because it contributes to the sense of being outside as, as being on another level. You know what I mean? Like, like being in the, stuck in that apartment and being outside with the sun, like beating you in the face, uh, the contrast of that is helpful. So we ended up really lucky and I'm really glad we got Sunshine in Seattle. That's good. That's a good title for the net for another project. Sunshine in Seattle. Exactly. <laughs> Seattle is also a. It feels like a great sort of uh, location in just sort of your filmography because you're often exploring these micro economies and these you know pockets of capitalism. And Seattle obviously has a very specific economic role in contemporary America. And I, I just wanted to ask a little more about that. Your interest in economies and how they work uh you keep returning to that with like 
very different variations, genre spins, but that seems like a backbone in many of your films. Yeah, I'm interested in money, jobs, how those two things interact, how central they are to contemporary experience. And what is the difference between a system that seems to function well and fairly uh, and a system that doesn't? And so I'm just interested in that because of my involvement with the Directors Guild, where I served on committees and was on the board and then vice president. And I got, a, I got to see a fairly detailed snapshot of how the entertainment industry functions. And it seemed on balance to me to function pretty well. It was transparent. It was unionized from top to bottom. And when something made a, a, a huge profit, it wasn't because the system was corrupt. It was because a lot of people paid money to see that thing. So nobody, you know, in, in, by the definition that I think most of us would agree to, nobody got screwed. So it's interesting that we, the people within the, the entertainment industry demand uh, a certain amount of transparency as just being the right way to do things. I wish that was more exportable than it seems to be. And it's got its it's got its issues, especially in sports. But you know, it's pretty it's it's more transparent than a lot of businesses at that scale. Especially tech. It's a big difference. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we know we know pretty much what's going on in the entertainment industry economically, as unstable as it is. Like information is out there. Um, yeah, not always the case in other contexts. This is a change of direction, but I kind of just wanted to ask about uh, the, the uh, pop songs that appear in the movie. There's like a handful of, of kind of rock and pop songs. There's, and um, two in particular that are just kind of 90s classics. And I'm just wondering where, why, why the, why those particular songs? Um, I asked Zoe to come up with a handful of options for what for what Angela would want to throw at these guys, and sabotage was on the list. And I thought hard to go wrong there. Um, and I think the other one is the Elastica song at the end. Connection is the song, yeah. Yeah, which I just, that's one of my favorite songs of that period. It seemed on the nose in a playful way, not, not in a way that was meant to, to make you cry. <laughs> it was more to make you smile. And it just, it laid out, when I laid it in, where the breaks are within the song, matched the picture perfectly mm. first time so yeah it's got that great chorus that comes that's like yeah and that 
wire riff. Yeah. How about Oxytocin, yeah. Billie Eilish? Okay. That's a, uh, an important song in the film. So who, who brought that in? Somebody working on the movie um, had has some, I didn't explore this uh, too deeply uh, in case I was deposed, but somebody in, in our camp knew some people in their camp the subject of the movie came up and there was a proposal that maybe one of the songs from the as then unreleased new album would work in our movie. And that talk about, it didn't take more than, you know, you, you could just look at the title of the songs on the album and go to that one pretty quickly. Um, so that was, that was a little bit of just a friendly wave that that got it into the movie. And yeah, I'm so glad it's there. It keeps it also another uh, signpost of the era, right? A very like keeps it up to date. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering why Kimi? I just, how did you come up with the name Kimi? We wanted something that just sounded so friendly and 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 not you would never imagine that it would be a threat it just had a musical it hit a musical note that is just you know very very pleasant on the ear so that was you know that's a name that's out there formula one driver and so it just sounded right to us yeah, I was just curious because I'm often curious about the psychology behind these names of uh, tech assistants and Alexa. Yeah, Siri. We don't think about them too much, but I'm sure there must be some analysis going into the names, like what you said, like how to make them sound like non-intrusive but very like confidants. You you know, these are absolutely crucial decisions, and that there's a scene very much like the one in the Hudsucker proxy where they're trying to figure out what to call the hula hoop. Um, there's a lot of that. And there's all, it also reminds me of that opening scene with the CEO and his like beautiful library. And then the pit pulls back to reveal that he's in like a garage. It's <laughs> just this fake scene. So everything is made to be very comfortable and look very like warm and inviting, but there's something else going on in the, in the, uh, and something, and something like, not controlled too. Well, exactly. It just seemed, it seemed like a really fun way to remind ourselves how, you know, constructed and curated these kinds of lives that live in this space can be. And that was just a fun visual way to make you smile in recognition of like, oh yeah, whenever you see somebody in that context, they've totally production designed what you're looking at behind them. They've arranged. They're wearing pajamas. <laughs> well, and, I, and I love that he's still. Yeah, exactly. He's still wealthy though. Like at first I was like, oh, this is all just sort of like, he's pretending to be rich. But then it's just like, no, it's just, he's in total control. He would just set this up as like a set to, yeah, yeah. to control his image. We wanted to wrap things up, I think, by just asking about what you're working on next, because it seems that you're always working on something. And you've had a very productive pandemic. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I was one of the lucky ones. 
Well, we're a, we're a few weeks from starting Magic Mike's last dance. Uh, my most awaited upcoming film. <laughs> Hook it to my veins. It's it's I'm excited because I feel that the evolution of this character and the universe uh, that he shares um, has has expanded and and this this is just a great opportunity for me to to work on a movie with a lot of music and dancing in it uh it's it's as close to a musical as i think i can get standing on the shoulders of a lot of really good people when you go into that space but if i was ever going to do it i think this is the one for me to do it on because I understand the world well. I'm really jazzed. I think we're all doing it because we want to do it. Nobody asked us to do it. That can't be true. The people are clamoring for it. No, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Like it's it's you you got to want to do it. And we just decided there's a lot of stuff here that we want to get out. Um, so it's going to be fun. A- anything that you can, you know, tell us about the film without giving too much away. Uh, the only thing I can say is that Mike goes to London. International. Okay, that's yep. exciting. Well, yep. we'll have to have you back when that's out and dig into the Please. Magic Mike, uh, you know, universe. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Magic Mike and Magic Mike. The second movie both placed very highly on our film comment end of the decade poll. So many people voted, put those films on their personal lists. That's funny. So. <laughs> That's nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for talking Kimi today. No, my pleasure. And um, yes, to be continued. Absolutely. And Kimi is on HBO Max right now. So if you're listening and you haven't seen it, you should go watch it right now. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.